Good morning, church. I invite you to take your copy of God's Word and turn to Mark chapter 1. Mark is the second book in the New Testament. If you're somewhat unfamiliar with the Bible, this morning we will be beginning uh, a series that will take us through next spring. Uh, the Lord willing, the plan will be to complete this series uh, the Sunday after Easter as we look at Mark's account of the life and ministry, death and resurrection of Jesus. And so as you uh, find your place this morning, uh, we want to recognize that uh, we've got some folks in the service with us this morning uh, who are, are very special to us, uh, even though I'm looking out at the crowd and can't find them. So Mark, wave at me. There they are, sitting in the back. So the Turners are with us, Mark and Whitney and the kids uh, who served for about a decade as our family pastor here. And then in 2019, has it really been that long? In 2019, we sent them, that's right, isn't it? 2018. Uh, for them to go and plant Redemption Heights Church along with some other folks from our congregation in West Philly. And since that point have been our partners in ministry uh, there. And uh, so you wanna, if you want, if you know Mark and Whitney, or even if you maybe you're new to our church and you've heard us talk about Redemption Heights and you'd like to meet them, uh, they will be around during the service today, but they're using our mission house, taking some time uh, for vacation. And so it's great to have them here. And at the end of the service, uh, we're gonna get to hear what the Lord is doing at Redemption Heights specifically over the last uh, couple of weeks through their kids week as we sent from some folks from our church to partner with them uh, in, in ministry there. I invite you now to stand with me as we begin reading in the Gospel of Mark. We're going to look this morning at the first 15 verses uh, of Mark's Gospel account. This is the word of the Lord. The beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey and he preached saying, after me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan and when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove and a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. The spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals and the angels were ministering to him. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you this morning for our time that we can spend worshiping that the gathered church can proclaim the gospel to one another through song and through the reading of your word and the proclamation 
of it. Would you bless our time, we ask. Would you help us, God, in the midst of this series, if it be your will, that we, your people in this place over the next several months can study this gospel account. God, would we grow in our faith? Would we love Jesus more? And would we believe in the gospel and proclaim it in our life and our words because you have declared it to us? Instruct us now, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. As we come to this first section of the gospel of Mark, I've entitled this sermon, The Gospel of Jesus Christ, because it is how Mark has entitled his gospel. We will find as we walk our way through the gospel of Mark that this is a no-nonsense book. Now, it's not to say that the other gospel accounts include nonsense. They don't. But none are as brief as Mark. None are as to the point as Mark. You will see as we have read this morning that there are accounts that Mark just gives us the basic information concerning. While there are some uh, events in the life of Jesus that Mark does go into detail Concerning, there are many times where Mark provides basic details for us. Desiring for his readers to know one very clear thing from the outset. That what is contained in these pages is the gospel of Jesus Christ. The church throughout its history has had to resist the temptation to allow current present passions of the day to add to the gospel of Jesus Christ. This, has, this is not only a recent occurrence, this is an occurrence that has plagued the church. And the church has not always been successful in guarding against additions to the gospel. At times the church has allowed the gospel to, to have an and attached to where we would tell people that you must believe the gospel but also do certain things to be saved. There have been times in church history where the church has allowed the word if to be added to the gospel, that it is the gospel for you if you are a certain type of person. In modernity, the gospel has been added to with the word or, where we have said you can believe the gospel to be saved or maybe you can find your own path. But we believe. Our church stands on the truth that there is one true gospel. And this gospel is the only way that man could be made right with God. And we say that this gospel in our core beliefs is the unifying message of our church. It is central to our life and mission. It is who we are. It is what we are about. It is our message as we proclaim the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus to our friends and to the world. This is Mark's passion as he begins to write his gospel account, as he begins to write about the life and teachings of Jesus Christ, he desires for his readers to understand that his central theme is the gospel of Jesus. So to introduce this book for us today, for us to come to this opening unit, we must recognize that it is about the gospel. 
The main idea of today's sermon is the gospel of Jesus is the good news of God's plan to save his people. It is not the gospel and, it is not the gospel if, it is not the gospel or, it is the gospel alone that is the good news of God's plan to save his people. I pray that we will see that this morning from this opening section of Mark. Now, I addressed this last week as I uh, kind of gave a a forerunning of this sermon and introduced it uh, that we would be starting in in the gospel of Mark today. But I want to say it again from the outset. We are going to approach the gospel of Mark somewhat different than we did the gospel of Luke a number of years ago. When I preached through the gospel of Luke here, it took 118 sermons. It was nearly two and a half years uh, in that gospel. Luke is a longer gospel account, a longer account of the life of Jesus than Mark, but we approached it differently. I took each individual section, each individual uh, event in the gospel of Luke, and we dealt with those sometimes for more than one week. In the gospel of Mark, we are going to take those different events and group them into units. Considering that sometimes, as we will today, uh, multiple events group together to form one cohesive message. There's not a right or wrong way to do this. And so the way that we did it in Luke was good for that series. The way we're doing this in Mark, which is going to allow us to move much quicker through this gospel account, will help us to see another way of reading the text and studying the text together. So let's begin by recognizing that the gospel of Mark, as we have said, proclaims the gospel of Jesus. He says this from the outset, giving a title to his gospel, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God. Now, as we do when we approach a new book and a new series through a book on Sunday mornings, it's important for for us to ask a few logistical questions about the text, primarily, who is writing this text, and if we can determine who it is, who they're writing it to, what's happening surrounding the writing of the text, it gives us some insight into how we can then interpret certain things that are written in it. The Gospel of Mark historically, from really the very, very early church, has been attributed to a man that is we know of as Mark, at some times he is called John, and other times he is called John Mark. It was not uncommon in that day uh, for Israelites to have both a uh, Hebrew name, John, and uh, and a Roman name, Mark, which so happens to be two of the most common names in both the Hebrew and in uh, the Roman culture, John Mark, and he will be referred to in both ways in the scriptures. However, he is never attested to in this gospel, except possibly in one place. And when we get to it in the spring, I will show it to you. And there's the possibility that Mark appears as a very young man in this account, but he does appear throughout the book of Acts and in some of Peter and Paul's writings to the church. And so let's just consider who this person is. We're first introduced Uh, by name to John Mark, to Mark here in Acts chapter 12. We're told in Acts chapter 12 of the story of 
Peter's imprisonment. James, the brother of Jesus, who was the head of the Jerusalem church, has been killed and Peter has been imprisoned and the saints of God in Jerusalem gather together to pray for Peter's release and we're told of his release in verse 12 of, uh, of Acts 12. And it says, when he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. So the first introduction that we have to the author of this gospel account is that he is from Jerusalem and that his mother must have been of some means because she had a house large enough for many of the Christians in Jerusalem to gather together during a time of important prayer. By the end of Acts chapter 12, Barnabas and Saul, who is also called Paul, uh, who are in Jerusalem, return back to Antioch and they bring Mark with them. We're told in verse 25 that they bring John, whose other name was Mark, with them after they had completed a time of service in Jerusalem before their first missionary journey. In Acts chapter 13, they undertake this missionary journey, leaving from Antioch by boat, going to the island of Crete, doing ministry there before heading towards Asia Minor. And John Mark accompanies them. But we're told in Acts 13, 13, that Paul and his companions set sail for a place called Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia, but John left them and returned to Jerusalem. So only after staying with the apostle Paul and Barnabas for two stops on that first missionary journey, for some unnamed reason, Mark returns to Jerusalem. Mark goes home and the mission team continues on the mission. A couple of years later, Paul and Barnabas have returned from their first missionary journey. They have spent some time with the church and they are now about to undertake their second missionary journey and a argument arises between the two. We're told in Acts 15 that after some, some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now Barnabas wanted to, talk, to take with them John called Mark, but Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. So here we have in Acts 15, at the beginning of Paul's second missionary journey, a, a, a disagreement arises between him and his mission partner over the subject of Mark, over the subject of this man who would eventually write this gospel account. So much so that the disagreement uh, was so serious that Paul says, I'm not taking him. Paul refuses to go. And it creates a divide and Barnabas takes Mark one direction. Paul goes another on his second missionary journey. This is the last time Mark is mentioned in the book of Acts. And so we have to fast forward in about 15 years, about a decade and a half passes before we receive two additional statements about Mark. We've left him causing a great disagreement between the missionary team of Paul and Barnabas. But now look what Peter says about him. In 1 Peter chapter 5, at the end of Peter's first letter to the churches, he says, she who is at Babylon, Babylon would be Rome, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. So 15 years later, after abandoning the first missionary journey causing division 
over his abandonment of that first journey of, the, of that mission team, now we have Peter writing about Mark who is not his actual blood son, but considering him similarly to how Paul did Timothy, considering him his son in the gospel. And then Paul, in the very last letter that he writes before his death, writing to his son in the gospel, Timothy says this. He says, Luke alone is with me in Rome. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to ministry for me. So what we see in Acts of Mark is that he was not yet ready for the mission. But the Lord matures him. The Lord works in his life. These men invest in him. And by the end of their lives, both Peter and Paul consider Mark valuable to the mission of God. Church history tells us that Mark likely was Peter's interpreter during his time in Rome. And so what we have here is the gospel account of Peter. Most likely the gospel of Mark is a compilation of Peter's teachings during his time in Rome to the Roman church. And either shortly before or after Peter's death, Mark undertakes writing down what Peter had taught. And we will see as we walk through this while Mark uh, at times will... Uh, condense several stories as he does here in this first section. When we get to descriptions of Peter, we get far more detail because those were the experiences that Peter himself had and now Mark is recording for us. But his intent is to record for us the gospel of Jesus Christ. So what is that gospel of Jesus? The gospel of Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of what came before. He says in verse two, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now it's interesting that Mark, the shortest of the gospels, is also the one who relies the least on the Old Testament. It's not to say that Mark doesn't rely at all on the Old Testament because he obviously does. He's quoting three different Old Testament passages here in these, first, in these couple of verses. But he relies less than the other synoptics do, than Matthew and Luke do in, uh, on, on the Old Testament. So when Mark quotes the Old Testament, it means it's very important for us. It's, 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 it would have been something that we need to pay close attention to. And this is what he does here. He begins by telling us he's going to write about the gospel of Jesus and then immediately, instead of providing genealogy like Matthew does or instead of providing uh, a nativity account like Luke does, he jumps straight into the one who is preparing the way before the Messiah. And he attributes these words to the prophet Isaiah, even though only some of these words were from the prophet Isaiah. This is actually a citation that is a mashup from a portion of Isaiah, the Old Testament prophet Malachi, and words recorded in Exodus. In Exodus 23, we're told that the Lord would send a messenger before his people. In Malachi chapter 3, we're told that the Lord would send a messenger to prepare the way. In Isaiah 40, we're told that a voice would cry out in the wilderness to prepare the way of the Lord. Why does Mark do this? Why does Mark take these verses and combine them together 
He attributes them all to Isaiah, not because Mark believed they were all said of Isaiah, but because Isaiah was held in high esteem in Mark's day. And the, the central focus of, his, of this quote, of this mashup citation is the words from Isaiah, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. But Mark is doing something bigger for us here. By pulling passage from uh, Exodus, pulling passage from Isaiah, pulling passage from Malachi, Mark is showing us that everything that has come before is pointing towards Jesus. That there's not a gospel of the Old Testament and now a gospel of Jesus Christ. There was not a gospel of, of Moses or a gospel of Abraham or a gospel of the prophets that's somehow different than the New Testament gospel, this gospel of Jesus that Mark is proclaiming. That there is one gospel of God. There is one plan of God to redeem his people. And that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the Old Testament has prepared the way. The Old Testament has, has, has had messengers that came pointing towards this very moment. The last of them, not actually in the Old Testament. The last Old Testament prophet is told in the New Testament. It is John. We know him as John the Baptist. And he is the one who begins to prepare this way. And so what Mark does is he connects what is said in the Old Testament about John the Baptist to the gospel of Jesus, ensuring that we know that this is one cohesive message. This is why in John chapter five, Jesus could look at the Pharisees and say, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life and it is they that bear witness about me. Listen, we don't go to the Old Testament to learn one message and then turn to the New Testament to learn a different message, which by the way, generally is how we structure sermon series here. We generally go from the Old Testament to the New Testament. And when we're done there, we go back to the Old Testament. We're not studying about two separate things. We're studying about one thing, the gospel of Jesus Christ and how it was foretold in the Old Testament and how it is, and how it is realized and then lived out in the New Testament because all of the scriptures speak about Jesus. Then in verse five, the last of the Old Testament prophets, John the Baptist appears, we're told. Look at verse five. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached saying, after me comes one who is mightier than I, the strap of whom sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. What is John doing? So here we have John who happens to be a relative of Jesus through his mother's side, who's born before him and whose ministry starts before him and who was certainly described in the scriptures as a very unique character. John living out in the Judean wilderness. We're told how he, how he dressed and clothed in camel's hair and with a leather belt eating locusts and, and wild honey. This is a very unique character, right? That he's the personification of the voice crying out in the wilderness. He, he's the, the personification of all of the prophets who have come before him. And the people are listening to him. 
We're told that the people from Jerusalem and the surrounding areas are all going out to the Jordan. They're, they're confessing their sins. They're being baptized. But this isn't about the gospel of John. The, Mark's not telling us about this gospel that John was proclaiming because John's gospel is Jesus's gospel. It's not that they were proclaiming two different things. John says to those who are coming out to him, there is one coming who is mightier than I. He even says, I don't deserve to bend down and to, to tie the loose straps of his sandals. He says, I only baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. John recognized that he, someone was coming, that Jesus was coming, that would usher in a fulfillment of everything that had come before. And this is why the the, the ministry of John sits where it does in this account of Mark's telling of the story of Jesus to bridge that gap from everything that had come before to point us to the one who had finally come, Jesus. Next, we see that the gospel of Jesus depends on Jesus being the son of God. We now have a brief description here in the gospel of Mark of the relationship or the, an encounter between John and Jesus. We know from other gospel accounts that there were, uh, there's, an ex, there's extended versions of this. We'll say that often when we come to the gospel of Mark, but what I'm going to try to do as much as possible is not rely on other gospel accounts. I want us to see what Mark is saying, what the Holy Spirit has inspired Mark to write and why it matters for us. And so we have this abbreviated version, this, uh, this abbreviated telling of the encounter between John the Baptist in the wilderness and Jesus who comes out to him. Look with me in verse, verses nine through 11. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descended on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. So Mark, having told us that the gospel of Jesus is the fulfillment of everything that has come before that, that that, that fulfillment is kind of personified in the last Old Testament prophet, John the Baptist, declaring the making his path straight before Jesus, declaring that one would come after him. Now we have the encounter of John and Jesus in the baptism of Jesus in the Jordan. And in this brief account, what Mark does is he highlights for his story what is going to be important for us. And so when we read this, what is it that Mark is highlighting? He's highlighting what the Lord, what the Father from heaven says at the baptism of Jesus. And really what we see here is all three persons of the Godhead. We see the God the Father, we see God the Son, we see God the Holy Spirit all working here, right? So Jesus goes out to, he goes out from Nazareth of Galilee, up by the Sea of Galilee, where he was being raised, where he was working uh, with his family. He goes out to John to begin his ministry, is baptized by John, and we're told immediately the heavens are torn open, the spirit descends like a dove, so the Holy Spirit comes and rests on Jesus, and the Father makes a public declaration about his son. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. 
by highlighting this, Mark is making clear for us that only the Son of God, fully God yet fully man, could be the one to restore sinful humans to holy God. That this truly is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And for it to be the gospel of Jesus Christ, it mu he must be the Son of God. Now Mark has already told us this once. If you look back in verse 1. In the title of this book, he says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And when we get to this account of Jesus' baptism, we have the Father declaring, you are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. This becomes a major theme in the gospel of Mark. There are other times, as we will see, that that it is made clear to us that Jesus is not an ordinary man. He's not just a good teacher. He's not like the Old Testament prophets. He's not just a spirit-filled messenger from God, but that he is God. So at the beginning of Mark, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. But we fast forward all the way to the end of Mark. Remember, Mark writing to Romans, Mark 15, at the crucifixion of Jesus, we're told that he uttered a loud cry and breathed his last in the curtain of the temple torn in two from top to bottom. And a centurion, a Roman, who stood facing him, saw that this was uh, the, the, this way he breathed his last. And he said, truly this man was the son of God. Bookending accounts beginning of Mark's account of the life, the gospel of Jesus, and the end of Mark's account, the life and gospel of Jesus, is a declaration that Jesus is the Son of God. That's going to be important for our understanding of this story, because only the Son of God could suffer and die in the way that Jesus did, providing a way for the salvation of God's people. And then, as Mark is going to do time and again, he moves just with urgency and brevity from one account to the next. And we're told in verses 12 and 13, the spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals and the angels were ministering to him. Now, other synoptic gospels, Matthew and Luke, give us a much fuller account. You've likely studied this. If you're a student of the Bible, you've studied this and those other accounts. And you're like, wait, what about turning you know, stones into bread? And what about going to the pinnacle of the temple? And, and what about bowing down, being offered everything that you can see? If, if, you would just, if you would just bow down before, what about all of that? Mark's not concerned with all of that. He, he's not concerning himself with the details of the temptation. He's simply telling us that immediately after being baptized, the spirit brings him out into the wilderness where he faces 40 days of being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild angels and the angels ministered him. This is all that Mark tells us. The point of Mark's temptation account is, to provide, is not to provide details of the temptation like Matthew and Luke do, but a clear statement of Jesus's victory. He just moves straight to the end and the angels were ministering to him. Satan tempted him, but obviously Satan doesn't win because the angels are ministering to Jesus at the end of the account. So this 40 days passes just across 
two verses. You say, but I want to know all the details. Listen, I'm grateful for the other gospel accounts because they tell us the details. And if I was preaching those, I, I would preach them completely different than this. We, we would look at each individual temptation, which I did when we preached through Luke and will, Lord willing, do one day in, in the other gospels. But let's just think, why would Mark do, why would he summarize this for us in this way? Why would he summarize the baptism of Jesus and then move immediately into the temptation of Jesus? Because he is showing us something by, by summarizing this and compacting this down, Mark is boiling it down to its essential elements for his message, the message of the gospel of Jesus. And that is that Jesus, the son of God, resisted where all else have failed. Jesus, the son of God, is the one who succeeds where our forefathers failed, where Adam and Eve failed at the temptation of Jesus, Jesus or at the temptation of Satan, Jesus succeeds. And this is important for the story. If we go back to the original temptation of mankind by Satan, you have Adam and Eve in the garden in perfect communion with God and Satan comes and tempts them. And they fail. And then they're judged by God. And in that judgment, God says this in Genesis 3, speaking to Satan, he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his, his heel. Jesus, the son of God, resisted where, all else, where everyone else failed. He is the one who crushes the head of the serpent. Jesus is the one who can go into the wilderness and survive the temptation where everyone else in the Old Testament time and again had given in to sin. Here comes Jesus, filled with the Holy Spirit, driven into the wilderness, ministered to by angels because he resisted where the rest of us have failed. Finally, the gospel of Jesus Christ demands a response. Look at verses 14 and 15. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. So a quick account of the ministry of John, a quick account of the baptism of Jesus, a quick account of Jesus's temptation. And now Jesus's ministry has begun. We get right to it and notice what he says. John has been arrested, so there's this transition point from the ministry of John to the ministry of Jesus. He goes into Galilee, where Jesus spends the majority of his time in ministry, proclaiming what? The gospel of God. Now, John has told, or Mark has told us that, the gospel of, that his book is about the gospel of Jesus, but here he calls it the gospel of God. This is the good news of God. This is God's plan. This is the plan that God has set out before the foundation of the world to save his people from their sins. And Jesus, proclaiming now that gospel of God, says in his ministry, and this is a summation of the the. Pro, proclamation ministry of Jesus. Jesus is going to say a lot of things. Jesus is going to do a lot of things. But Mark boils this down for us and summarizes all of it. Jesus says, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. We sense here again, the urgency of Mark's gospel. We will sense it throughout this series. The time is now, Jesus declares. 
The time is fulfilled. All that was leading up to this is now fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Do you sense the urgency here in what Mark records for us? It's now or never. We're just in the first chapter. Things have just started getting going good. Other authors would, would, would still be giving us a lot of background and a lot of detail, and we're grateful for those. But here we have Mark, who, who is just with urgency, getting right to the point. It's now. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Everything has, the time is fulfilled. And he says this, repent and believe the gospel. The gospel of Jesus demands a response. It's not something that we can just hear and think, you know, that kind of sounds decent to me. I, 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 I could get on board with that or I, I could get on board with you getting on board with that, but I'll kind of make my own way or maybe I'll believe that one day. No, hear the urgency of the gospel message. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. You may say, is there really urgency there? Because Jesus said this 2,000 years ago. The church has been proclaiming this message for centuries now. Is there really urgency here? Yes. My friend, there's urgency here because you're not promised tomorrow. I'm not promised tomorrow. We collectively are not promised tomorrow. And Mark communicates to us an urgency that we must all recognize, that we must agree with the Apostle Paul in Romans 1, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Here's what you need to understand today, my friend. The gospel is for you. It is good news for you. It is recorded for you that Jesus came and lived a perfect life and died a sinner's death for you. Have you responded to it? That, that's how we have to end this first message is asking this question. Have I repented of my sin and believed the gospel of Jesus Christ? Not do I know it. Because I would wager most people, not everybody, but most people in this room know these stories. You not only know the stories in the way Mark told them, you probably know the detailed accounts that other gospel authors give us. But you know, there's a difference between knowing something and believing something. There's a difference between knowing these truths about Jesus and thinking maybe one day I'll put my faith in it and actually repenting of your sins and turning towards Christ because you believe the gospel of Jesus. Now, I told you this is likely Mark who becomes the uh, translator for Peter during his time in Rome writing the, the preachings and the accounts of Peter as he recalls the life of Jesus. In the Gospel of Acts, we get a couple of sermons from that very Peter, one to Jews and one to Gentiles. The first is the first sermon of the Christian church on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter two, when the Holy Spirit, like it did on Jesus in his baptism, comes upon all of the disciples and they go out into the streets during the uh, festival of Pentecost proclaiming the gospel. And Peter, with thousands gathered around, proclaims the good news of Jesus. And then he says this in verse 38, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Sometime later in Acts chapter 10, Peter's in Caesarea 
on the Mediterranean Sea in the northern part of Israel. And he's been called there to preach to Gentiles. And after preaching the good news of the gospel of Jesus to Gentiles, he says this, to him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Here's what I want want to ask you. I want to confront you with this morning as we close. Have you done what the urgency of the gospel demands? Have you repented of your sins and believed in the gospel of Jesus Christ? Let me just quickly explain what that means. To repent of your sins is to change the way that you think about the way that you live your life. We're born thinking we're in control of our lives. We're born believing that we know best. We're we're wired to believe that we are in control. It is our sin nature. But when we're confronted with the gospel of Jesus Christ, to repent means to change that sin nature, to change the way that we think that God gives us a new heart and a new mind and, and an ability to turn towards him and to follow him, to say, I am no longer in control, but now you, Jesus, are in control. And we do that through belief that we don't just know these stories about Jesus, but that we believe these stories about Jesus. We don't just believe that they're true, historical, accurate events, which they are, but we believe that they are the good news, the gospel of Jesus, and that by believing in them, that coming to him in faith, turning towards him in repentance, that we can be saved, that this is God's plan to save his people from their sins. And hear me today, my friend, it is for you if you will believe. It is for you if you will repent. If you will turn towards Jesus today as Peter, and Peter invited the Jews in Jerusalem to do in Acts 2 and the Gentiles in Caesarea to do in Acts 10, to repent of your sins, to believe in Jesus, Turn towards him today, my friends, because it is through the gospel of Jesus Christ alone that we can be made right with God. And that invitation is offered for you right now to believe and be saved. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for the clear articulation of the gospel of Jesus through your word. Thank you that your Holy Spirit inspired Mark flawed as he was, encouraging to us and our own failures to record for us that which is so essential. The fulfillment of the Old Testament in Jesus, the plan of God to redeem a people that we know is the gospel. God, would you call people to believe that today? Would would men and women and boys and girls believe that right now? Be saved. They put their faith in Jesus, we pray. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. I'm going to do something a little different than we have typically been doing for the last couple of years. Often I'll offer a gospel invitation like this and invite you to come and see me in, in the lobby. But, and you can still do that. that. That's still open for you. I'd love to talk with you about that. But I, just, I want to present an urgency I believe the text presents an urgency. And so I want us to have some urgency this morning. So in a minute, we're going to stand together and sing. And I'm going to sit right here on this front pew. This is where I said, you can, always, you can do this on any Sunday. But I'm, I'm, going to sit, I'm going to be standing right here on this front pew. 
And if you say, I believe the God, I, I want to believe that today. I, I, with urgency, want to repent of my sins and believe the gospel today. Don't wait for me to be in the lobby. Don't wait till after the service and everybody's gone and you can kind of work your way to me, which people sometimes do. And that's all right. But why don't you come right now? When we stand to sing, make your first movement, come and find me. We'll sit right here on this front pew and I can share with you how you can put your faith in Jesus today and we'll celebrate that together because this is how we respond to the gospel of Jesus. We respond with urgency by running to him because he is our only hope. So would you stand with me and respond?